I do want to say a few kind words about Brother Clarence Sexton, who went to be with the Lord. Sexton, he's had major back issues for multitudes of years, but his death was not related to that. Really got sick several weeks ago, and the doctors could never figure it out, um, what was going on with him. And uh, I've only met him once. Uh, I've been to his church one time, and but we had a mutual friend. Really, that was how we met. And that was Pastor Dick Riley, who had pastored in Fort Myers, Florida. And Pastor Riley and I became, uh, became close when I was on deputation for New Guinea. And he had started the church there in Fort Myers in 19... It's either 1966 or 1969. He had started uh, the church. And in the early 70s, I believe it was, to mid-70s, a couple of bus kids that came to his that came on his bus ministry and ended up getting saved, and his bus ministry was Clarence and Tom Sexton. And, uh, and so I'd met him when Brother... Uh, I happened to be on a furlough at the time, and Brother Riley was in the hospital, and even visited with him that Tuesday. We talked. He was getting out of the hospital that week. Even, he even was talking about he wanted to do some baptisms that Sunday. I still remember talking with him on the side of the bed. Little did we know, that was Tuesday, Thursday, he would go to be with the Lord while he was being discharged. And uh, it really was amazing of the Lord. It was one of those things that just strengthens your faith with God's grace and God's mercy with his servants. This was a pastor for all those years since 1966 or 1969. Faithful, not a big church. His church probably ran about 100. Um, That's pretty much what it stayed at. Um, the majority of his ministry. But he was a very faithful, faithful man. And um, that Thursday, he was being discharged. Um, He had battled cancer off and on for decades. And so he was back in on some follow-up with some concerns that the cancer had returned, and he was now being discharged. Um, And uh, he was getting ready. Actually, still in the hospital and with his family. His family was with him. And I know all, all of his kids well. And uh, um, he had, matter of fact, his, his grandson became pastor of that church. And, and his, so his great-grandson is actually close friends right now with Connor at Pensacola uh, Christian College. But anyhow, Thursday he was being discharged. And it's just an amazing, amazing story. Um, he, he had just went to the restroom, he came back, he just got dressed, he's sitting on the bed talking with his family, everything is fine, and uh, his daughter said all of a sudden he looked straight up in the air and just went, oh, and died. And he said they knew, it, like he saw whatever it was, and, uh, and the report came back, and this is more of the Lord's grace and mercy, he was filled with cancer. Lord didn't let him go through one treatment, anything. Just went ahead and took him home at that time. And then, matter of fact, I preached that Sunday. And then National Brother Clarence said he flew in that week to preach the funeral. And uh, um, and Brother Clarence, who went to be with the Lord here, he he was he was helped him many. He if you, if you're not aware, but he started Crown College. Um, that was started, I don't remember when, I'd, I'd guess late 80s, but I'm not certain of that. At least that's the first time I ever remember hearing it mentioned, it would have been late 80s, early 90s, um, Crown College. 
And uh, he was a Tennessee Temple from Florida. He went off to Tennessee Temple. And I believe, if I remember right, he stayed on staff um, at Tennessee Temple for a short time, lurking, working with Lee Robertson. And then he left um, to take that church. Uh, what was the name of his church? It's escaping me right now. Can anybody remember the name? What is it? Temple, Temple Baptist. Yes, Temple Baptist. And, uh, but I certainly appreciate his, his ministry over the years. And, uh, but anyhow... Um, oh, oops, I'm in Ecclesiastes here. I got to get to Romans chapter five. Romans chapter five. <clears throat> All right, starting there in verse number one. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice. In the hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. Let's stop right there. Father in heaven, Lord, we ask your blessing upon your word tonight. Lord, I thank you for it. Lord, please help me to stay true to your word. Control what I say, Lord, and, and the words that I use, that they would be a help. Lord, that your spirit would use them to strengthen us. Lord, may we clearly see the truth that is here and use it to draw us closer. I do pray if there's anyone here who has never truly been converted, I pray for that conviction and that drawing, that even this evening they would repent and place their faith in Christ. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So as we know, coming through chapter 3, really building up since chapter 1, Paul has been making his case for justification by faith alone. The bulk of the previous chapter in chapter 4 was primarily him using the example of Abraham as a true, genuine example of how justification works and how it's by faith alone. The basis of the whole premise was this. If Abraham needed to be justified by faith alone, then that is true of every single one of us. This was a man who was a friend of God. This was a man who was righteous, who, who tried to serve God with all he had. But his works had nothing to do with his salvation. Nothing at all. It is only by justification by faith alone. Now we come into chapter 5. Chapter 5 is one of my favorite chapters in the book of Romans. It's an amazing chapter. I'm looking forward to diving into this. And uh, it, it, it dives into the how of salvation. How this works. This justification through what Christ did on the cross. He starts off though here in these first few verses that we're going to look at this evening. Dealing with some... Uh, really some amazing benefits that come as a result of now being justified. Okay? There's some amazing truths about being saved. Have you ever stopped to think about what it means to actually be a Christian? To be saved. What it means that you are now justified. There really is so much to being saved. There's so much that comes with it, from being a child of God to... I, I mean, these truths are something that have a direct effect. Not indirect, not, not just in theory, not, not just something that's uh, not tangible. These things should have a direct effect on our life each day. Today's almost like getting into the owner's manual of a vehicle. Of seeing what comes with 
this, this salvation that has been purchased for us. <clears throat> I think it's to understand all that we have when it comes to our salvation. I mean, right now, let, let me try and give an illustration why I think it's important. We can see what's happening in the United States of America. Those people who have been born, raised in this nation, especially this generation right now, anywhere from 15 years old up to maybe 30, 35 years old. There are multitudes of them that are completely unaware, completely ignorant of the great privilege they have as Americans. The benefits to being in this nation, the benefits to being citizens of this country. The freedoms they have, the protection they enjoy, the opportunity they have to be successful. They've forgotten all about it. I mean, the devil's done a great job at developing a victim mold culture. Everybody wants to be a victim from something. And they lose sight of the benefits of how great it is to be born in this nation, the opportunities that are presented to you, like no other nation in the world. But because they are completely unaware of that, never dwelling on what really comes with the privilege of being an American, boy, they suffer greatly and they make wrong decisions. They have also forgotten the tremendous price that was paid so they can enjoy these privileges. So that's just a, a small example of what can take place in the life of a person when you do not focus on the benefits of what you actually possess. And we can recognize that in our nation. But the dangers are far greater for the Christian who doesn't recognize what they have because they belong to God. And decisions they end up making because they don't realize the benefits, the privileges of what comes with salvation. They begin to take God for granted. They become unthankful. They become nominal Christians. Maybe even content just to attend church. Just to play the game. Maybe not even do that. Maybe just get of the mind, well, God knows my heart. I don't have to go to church. A bunch of hypocrites are there. Well, when you don't come, it's just one less. It's true. Every single one of us says, you want to find a reason not to come? You could find it. Really, uh, it's, 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 it's incredible to me the utter hypocrisy of those statements that are being made. You have become unthankful. You have forgotten the privilege it is to belong to God. Your focus isn't on him, whether it's on man or whatever it is. Just like those in this nation that get their focus on all this other junk that's out there. And forget the privilege it is to be in this nation. This evening, in our text, we're going to look at some of those benefits that come with being justified by faith. So Paul is using deductive reasoning here. Of course, the Holy Spirit's in control of all this and saying, by the way, he's saying, I want you to think about this. If justification by faith is true, what else is true? What comes with it? Within the verses we read, he gives us four. I'll give them to you right now. 
Number one, armistice. Number two, access. Number three, acclaim in our future. Number four, acclaim in our struggles of life. So let's dive into this. First off, there's an armistice. I can't even say it right right now. There is peace. There's a truce that has been made. Look at verse number one. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The peace he's talking about here is not psychological, it's not a mindset, it's not emotional security, it's not a feeling of calmness or a lack of anxiety, it's not subjective at all. He's dealing with an objective peace that is relationship-based. A peace that deals with between, an in, between two enemies that are all of a sudden reconciled. He's dealing with our relationship before the Creator Himself. Prior to justification by faith, we were represented as the enemy of God. Later on, I think it's in the same chapter, verse 10. For when we were enemies, for when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. We see it throughout the New Testament. It was in Colossians chapter, let me get over to the book of Colossians here real quick. Chapter 1. Verse 21, in you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. Before salvation, I want you to think about this. Don't miss this. It's not a Sunday school lesson. Before you were justified by faith, the creator was your enemy. That's the wrong person to have as an enemy. Do you understand? That, that was the actual biggest weight, the biggest burden, the biggest problem you faced was the fact that you were on the wrong side when it came to the Creator. You were His enemy. Alienated. Under wrath. Under condemnation. But as a result of justification... A treaty has been made. A truce is done. Peace is there. Reconciliation is there. An ambassador came and showed you how to have this, this peace agreement, this armistice with God. How to go from being an enemy with God to being on the same side with God. Let me quote from one commentator. His words are much better than mine. He said, you have ceased to be an enemy of God. You have become a child of God. You have ceased to be a hater of God. You have become a lover of God. You have ceased to be a child of Satan and become a child of God. You have passed out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God's dear Son. And the relationship of animosity has been dramatically altered and, be and become a relationship of intimacy and loving fellowship. I mean, it went from one extreme to the other. The moment that God justified you when you placed your faith in Christ, you were translated kingdoms, relationship, all that transpired instantly from an enemy to now a child of God. At peace. Him on your side. God is no longer your enemy. You're no longer under His wrath. You're now under His protection. We're no longer fighting Him. He's now the one that is for us. Because of what Christ did. By imputing unto me His own righteousness. That act allowed, God, allowed me to be at peace with God. It was done. 
I want you to think about this. Like, throughout history, you can read about different peace deals that come about when two nations are warring or two tribes are warring and what they try to do to, when, when, when there's been enough bloodshed or, or whatever has finally led to it where they have to say, okay, we've got to come to an armistice. We have to come to a peace agreement. We've got to come up with some way, some way to do this. And in some cases, when, there's been, when, when, there, when one nation is just completely dominated, it's usually an absolute, unconditional surrender that is required. We have won this. It's over with. We will sign a peace treaty with you under an unconditional surrender. Or you can read at different agreements where two sides do compromise on things. Okay, if, if these things take place, we'll have peace. Well, when it comes to us being the enemy of God and on the wrong side and under His condemnation and under His wrath, He came up with a peace treaty. He came up with one way and that is it. There is no other way. The truth is man in all of his religions is trying to come up with his own way to make peace with God. But there is only one way. There is one peace agreement that has been put on the table and that is it. That's the justification by faith in Christ alone. That is the only way to enter into this peace with God. There's no other way for it. Now get this, because of that, I've never looked at these verses till this week, and I'm not going to focus on that today. I almost did, but it really wasn't the primary meaning. But, but in this right here, we actually have some of the greatest truths of the eternal security of the believer. Why you can never, ever lose your salvation. Now that's not even remotely possible. I have been made at peace, reconciled because of what Christ did. Hebrews 8 chapter, in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 12, it, uh, that's near the end of the chapter, finishes with, it's, it's defining really what the new covenant is all about. And it says this, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more. Remember, as we read in Colossians, it's our sin that allowed us, that, that caused us to be uh, uh, enemies of God. But now, God, I will remember them no more. Isn't that amazing? God chooses, I'm not even going to remember him. Now, that then leads right into the next benefit, number two, access. Amazing. Verse two, by whom we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. Amazing. So we have an armistice that is taking place, a truce. We're at peace. But now we have access. It's not that we're just no longer enemies, but I have this access. Remember, in the Old Testament, when the sanctuary and the temple were built, the dwelling place of God was the holiest of holies. The most holy place. Which... You had the thick veil, the curtain that, that guarded access into that. No one was allowed in with the one exception of the high priest. 
And when that high priest entered in, that was only allowed once a year. And when he entered in, oh, did he have to go through a, 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 a sanctification or a, a, there's a better word for that, I'm not thinking of it, a purification process before he could enter in. I mean, the rope would be tied around him. He'd have bells on his garment. Those bell, that's not how he walked around every day. That's when he was going into the holiest of holies. That's when he was going into where the Ark of the Covenant was. That's where he was going into the dwelling place of God. And, and, and again, the bells were there and the rope was there because if he didn't run that purification right, you know what happened to him? Dead. So that's why the, that's why the bells and the rope were there in case God killed him. Because what they could, the, the priest outside, in the very room, we talked about the holy place last week, where the, the, the table of showbread was, where the candlestick was, where the altar of incense was. The, the other priests are outside there. They're on the other end of the rope. And they're listening for the bells. And if the bells stopped ringing, you know what they did? He's dead. Pull him out. I mean, just think if you're the high priest... And it's that one day a year, and you're heading in. And they're putting the rope around you. And you know why the rope is there. In case God kills you when you enter in. Bells are there. I mean, if that's me, I'm really moving those bells around. Ding, 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 ding. But there would be such a measure of fear. I mean, he understood the importance. He understood the privilege of entering in. And he was the only one, one day a year. And he wasn't necessarily certain what to expect. Now get this. When Christ died, what happened? The veil was torn. It was done. Access is now possible. Access is now possible, not just simply for the high priest, but for us. But when we have access, it's much different than the high priest. I don't have to go with the rope tied around me. I don't have to go with bells around me to make sure in case God kills me. Because when I go in, this is all based upon grace. When I enter in because the access I have, you know what? I don't have to come under condemnation or wrath or judgment or vengeance. Do you know what I will find? Grace. That I can stand. Grace. We have this as a result of justification of faith in Christ. You have access to God. One in which, which there isn't a fear of trepidation, of condemnation coming down on you. You have access and you can stand in grace. You never had that privilege before you put your faith in Christ. It did not exist for you. We can go in and stand in grace what was unthinkable in the Old Testament would never even cross the mind of the average Jew to have this level of privilege, this level of intimacy that he just openly gives you access. I can go right to the Creator. God does not look down on Terry McGovern and say, you know what? Yeah, I think I like him. 
He does, this is not how this works. He doesn't say, no, I'll give him access. What he chose in his sovereignty before the foundation of the world, knowing that man would sin against him, that one, one aspect of salvation, and, and think of, there's just so much to this. The fact of God desiring fellowship with us and enabling a process to take place where we could, as sinners, actually have access. So that through His Son, He would impute unto us righteousness, perfection. That perfection so we could stand in His presence. Yet He knows we don't deserve it. That's where grace comes in. He says, I choose unmerited, not deserved favor upon you. Yet I wonder how many of us prayed this week as if we don't even care about it. You don't even understand the benefit you have of being a Christian, the privilege it is to come to have access to the very throne of grace. This also, when you think about it, is another verse that is strong in you can never, ever, ever lose your salvation. Because I am standing. This is not based upon my good works. This is not based on my abilities. I stand in grace. Salvation is not maintained because of my goodness. It is simply because of all of grace. Not only do I have access because of justification by faith. Get this. Look at, look at the other half of, of verse 2. And rejoice in hope of the glory of God. This one, it's dealing with rejoicing. I titled acclamations to have an A. For rejoicing. There's a method, there, there is a rejoicing that we have here of hope of the glory of God. So what is this getting into? It's incredible. This is amazing to think of this. So this is a result of being justified by faith. Of the future that awaits me. A future wherein one day I will be as Christ. In the sense of, of his body, of perfection. In the sense that I will partake to that level of His glory. The word glory here usually means splendor, magnific magnificence, honor. The apostle here refers to more of honor and dignity which will be conferred on us, given to us, because we are redeemed. That that will take place one day. When, when this is all said and done with the completion of the work, when I'll be freed from sin, freed from pain, tears, permitted to, 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 to enjoy the presence and splendor of God. The word hope here does not at all have the same meaning as we think of hope. The meaning of this word is this. It has the meaning of certainty. It means something that is certain but not yet realized. 
It isn't hope that, uh, uh, like, I hope this happens. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, no, no, this is certain. I just don't have it yet. That one day I will share in the glory of God. Look at 1 John. Turn over to 1 John. Verse 1 says this, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed on us that we should be called the sons of God, a privilege of justification. Therefore the world knoweth us, uh, knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. This is what Paul is referring to in Romans chapter 5, the second part of, of, of chapter 2 here, about us being a, a partaker of the glory of God, of what is going to take place for us. How we, he, Jesus talked about this as well in his prayer in John chapter 17. We will be partakers of this. We will be made like Christ. We will see him as he is. One day this vile body will be a thing of the past. This corruption shall put on incorruption. That day will come. Paul saying, listen, I, I have that hope. I mean, he dealt with it even when you get into Philippians chapter 1 when he was facing execution and, and not knowing if it, was going, if it was going to take place. He understood when he was discussing this, and I know I might die right now. I might be executed. And he said, and I know this, to depart and be with Christ is far better. Why? Because of the hope, the certainty he had of what was to come that he had yet to realize. But that day was coming. I mean, isn't it good to know that oh, one day this, this body's done away with? One day, Caleb, I'm going to race you in heaven and I'm going to beat you. Yep, I'm, gonna, I'm still going to beat you even in heaven. But we'll be able to sit down and just have conversations. And you won't talk as much. And when I'm talking with you, you're not going to drool. I'm not going to have to wipe your mouth. <laughs> I'm going to get him talking now. Now we're in for it. But one day it's all going to be over with. One day, Roger will not look like that. Heaven could not be heaven if Roger looked like that. But brother, one day it's all over with. You won't have any trouble walking upstairs. One day, Brother Lambert, both of us will have a lot more hair. I won't need glasses anymore. Bob? I don't know. He is a miracle-working God, so... But just like that Thursday when Brother Riley died. I mean, I remember when I was talking with his daughter, who was in the room when it happened. I was talking with her, it was either that same day or that Friday. I mean, she was so sad. I mean, her, her father just passed unexpectedly. But nonetheless, 
you can still see the joy she had because of how it happened. I mean, she, was, she goes, I know, I know he saw something. And then was dead, was gone. That soul departed was in the presence of Christ, which as Paul said is far better. Listen, is that true or not? Is it true? Then why do you allow yourself to get so full of depression over the things of this life? Is it true or not? One day all the toil will be over as we sing. It will all be past. I'll receive a perfect body and be in a perfect place. Which leads to our last acclamation, verses 3 and 4. Amazing wording right here. He covers really just, just a single aspect. There's so much to our salvation. He's given another reason we can rejoice. One, we can rejoice in the hope of our future, what is to come. All right? And, and that not only did he, with justification is the promise that one day we will partake of the glory of God himself. When we see him, we shall be like him. A perfected body out of the sinlessness. And by the way, stop expecting God to do that now. It'll happen then, just like he promised. So, I don't know why I yell. But look at this. And not only so, you can almost see Paul's getting excited as he's writing this down. That's not only that, he said, think about this. But we glory in tribulations also. Knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience back to hope. So let's follow this. Here he gets into this. Not only can we rejoice in the hope of our future, in the certainty of what one day we will realize as truth in the future. But he said, but, but you have another angle to rejoice. The word glory here, by the way, is the exact same word rejoice in the previous verse. Same word. It's still doing, dealing with glory. It's not dealing with splendor there. It's dealing with rejoicing. He said you can also rejoice glory in, in, even in the tribulations of life. Listen, this isn't possible for the world. They cannot look at the trials and tribulations of life and come up with a measure of rejoicing as a result. The only way they're going to be able to rejoice is when it ends. Is when it's over with. As they wait for whatever, whatever uh, uh, um, struggle or trial they're going through, they can only rejoice when it's over. They can't see the benefit within because these benefits that Paul is dealing with comes only as the result of being justified by faith in Christ. This one's a huge benefit because it puts us in a place where we have the ability to rejoice in our struggles. And the word means pressure in the pressures of life. I mean, the world, many times, in the day we live in, when the pressures of life hit, turns to drugs, alcohol, suicide, different forms of escapism, depression, anxiety. 
but for those who are justified, Paul says, wait, you still have pressures. That doesn't change when you're saved. We're still in a sin-cursed earth, in, these sin, in our bodies which are full of sin. It's still here. So trials, struggles, difficulties, disappointments, pain will all hit. But he says, here's something else God does. Because we're no longer enemies. We've been made at peace. We're his child. What he chooses to do for us in the midst of struggles is he allows some benefits to come as a result. Now listen. Let me explain this right. When you got saved, the fact of being born again did not, listen to me, did not change your character right there. It did not. What it did do, as we see here, is it put in place the potential for your character to be changed. And that's what he's dealing with here. You see, and, and know what God chooses to use? Trials, pressures, struggles. And if you think about it, it makes so much sense. God will use the struggles of life, which we all face, to change us. These tribulations, it says, as it, starts, as it goes through this, it says, knowing that tribulation worketh patience. The word patience here, always got to define the terms which are used in the verse and in context of the verse. It carries the idea of endurance as well as perseverance. Of endurance as well as perseverance. So in other words, he's saying, listen, this tribulation, God can use it to, as a means of strengthening endurance. Where, where, where you don't have to, it doesn't have to cause you to quit. It doesn't have to cause you to go into a shell and shut down. It doesn't have to cause you to say, okay, that's it. No, you can make it. There's a measure of perseverance that God to use. You don't have to run to escapism. You don't have to run to those different things. Remember, the Apostle Paul is a great example. Though. He prayed three times, Lord, please remove the thorn in my flesh. I mean, the Apostle Paul is praying this. But then God revealed to him and said, Paul, you don't want that removed. You don't understand how I'm using that difficulty in your life. Paul, you have been given an abundance of revelation. And I got news for you. You're still flesh. You're still a sinful man. That thorn in the flesh, you want to know how I'm using it? I'm keeping it from your pathetic, stupid head from getting swelled up because of all the abundance of revelation. I'm reminding you, you are but dust. And that what you do have is all of my grace. And then, did not Paul's complete attitude towards his tribulation change? Now he's praying just the opposite. Lord, don't remove it. Keep it. I don't want it gone. But too often, you know what we do? We value comfort more than we do faith. And this patient... Patience then works, what, what does it work next? This is an interesting word. This is one of those ones that took a little bit of diving into. 
and patience experience. The word straight meaning means proof. Or, get this, character. It was used of testing metals to determine their purity. And so what he's saying is, this is where it gets into the potential for change in your life. How God can use the trials and pressures and struggles of life. If you'll choose to let it, this is a benefit. This is opening the owner's meaning of what you have because of justification of faith. That God can use those pressures and those trials to begin to change you. To begin to mold your character. To prove you. To change you. To create a more usable vessel. To refine us. To make us better. Which then, as he finishes, puts us even in a better position to focus on Of how all this ends. And what is to come. Because we all recognize. That so often. The cares of this world. And everything else that goes with that. The deceitfulness of riches. You, you name it. Can all of a sudden steal your focus. Where it's no longer about God. It's no longer about. The hope that God has given you. As a result of justification. And what a slap in the face. No, I, I mentioned the tremendous price that was paid for our freedom in the introduction to being Americans. The wars that were fought, the blood that was shed. We honor it Memorial Day. We think of it even on Veterans Day, the 4th of July, and we should. But even though all the blood that had been shed by the hundreds of thousands to maintain the freedoms of this country... It doesn't compare to the blood that was shed of the Son of God that purchased your redemption. The one who made possible your salvation. The one who imputes to you the righteousness of the Son of God. And then yet we get bogged down in the things of the world. There is great benefit to being saved. I'm no longer God's enemy. I have access. Access right to God. I can rejoice in the hope of my future. I can even rejoice what the world cannot do in the trials of this life because of how God can choose to use them to change me. Which brings me back to hope for what is to come. With heads bowed and eyes closed. Now let me ask this. Is there, I know we don't have any first-time visitors here, but I want you to think about this. Maybe this has been bothering you. If you said, Pastor, listen, I don't know that I 